Okay, I guess this is almost everybody, so we'll get started. Does being selfless mean you don't have your identity or personality, likes or dislikes? <clears throat> I'm going to assume that this person is meaning like selfless as in not self, anatta. Um, and I would say that I, I don't think you, your, your personality disappears. I think if you know, like a, an a awakened being doesn't become like a robot all of a sudden, like they, cause they don't have a self. I think their tendencies and their personality is there. I mean, if you read the, the suttas, the Buddha definitely has a certain personality. Um, there's some funny things that he does and says, and, you know, um, and he's uh, very compassionate, but he can also be very strict. So you, see, you get a, a glimpse of, um, you know, uh, who he is in that regard. So I don't think it's, you know, you... You're born into this, even an awakened being, they're still in a body. They still have that last body. They still have the five aggregates that have come together. They still have the, ten, the karmic tendencies of their many, many lifetimes, all you know, that have come together in this last life. You know, uh, but they've cut off you know, uh, any future life, and they've come, they understand that, you know, Yes, this personality. Oh, I have a happy, smiley, laughy personality. Okay, well, that's just the personality of this being. It's not me. It's not mine. You know, I don't have to attach to it. I don't have to. Um, I don't have to cling to it. But I can just accept it as, you know, part of this personality, and use it in a way that will be skillful for for teaching purposes. So uh, I don't think that your identity or your personality just disappears. You just don't cling to it as yours. 
It's an identity, it's a personality. It's part of this psychophysical organism that is you. But you don't have to see it that way. You don't have to accept it as yours. You don't have to identify with it as mine or me. I guess I can quickly answer uh, what we normally think of as selfless. Doing like selfless deeds, um, acting in a selfless manner, uh, is a way of actually putting, lessening your attachment to that identity, right? If you have this identity, um, you know, I feel this way, and you cling to a certain view, um, and you attach that view and you'll just hold on to it no matter what. Even if somebody's telling you something else or they're, they're trying to show you a different perspective, you don't want to hear it, you don't want to see it because you're attached to that view. A selfless person. Now we, um, Bhante Panya and I were just talking about this one sutta, um, the 128th sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya, which is next to the Anuruddha Sutta. And it, the, the, um, in the beginning, it starts out with the, the monastics are throwing verbal daggers at each other and brawling and doing all this stuff. It's really funny. It's one of the few times in the suttas. And the Buddha just looks at them and says, okay, I'm out. And he just disappears and he walks away. And it's one of the few times you see, wow, this is not all of the monks were all these like pious you know, guys. And, um, <clears throat> and he goes to uh, Anuruddha and his group and they're living there very well together and all of these kind of things. And he, the Buddha asks, well, how do you do this? And it, much of it is very selfless kind of stuff. You know, um, you say, well, how about instead of doing what I want to do, I do what they want to do? You know, these kind of things. It's putting others in front of yourself and helping you develop a humility and less of an attachment to that um, to that self so I think that's a, one of the, the good aspects of selfless um, behavior working on humility which eventually degrades your attachment to the self can some level of metta such as Breathing in and out, calm and peaceful, be done in most, most activities, i.e. yoga. I don't see why not. I mean, you know, I did yoga for years and I, you know, used it as part of my practice. You know, you can do mindfulness meditation while you're doing yoga. You can be mindful of all the aspects. Like I said in the, um, the mindfulness of eating little thing that I give, um, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha talks about clear comprehension of, um, of your postures, what you're doing, standing, lying down, stretching, all of these things. Like I said, going to the bathroom, all of that. You're acting in a clear comprehension and understanding what you're doing. And that, that's a, a mindfulness. Metta is a mindfulness. So you could, you know, you could practice giving that metta out while you're doing anything, basically. Um, you know, in, if it's something like, you know, you, you, you had a tough day at work or you're stressed and this and that, and you go down to, to do your yoga, and while you're doing your yoga, you give yourself metta and these kind of things, that's fine too. It's a good way of 
helping to calm your mind and your body at the same time. One of the most freeing things you realize is when you realize that you can do this practice off the cushion, the whole thing. But once you realize you can get off the cushion, the whole world opens to you. <coughs> Yesterday during Dhamma talks, Bhante spoke about observing with senses, noticing but not grasping. How do I appreciate beauty with right attitude? B, I often appreciate nature or a kind act or I admire a sunrise. I even appreciate and feel glad for my walls on the path here or my walk on the path here. Is it okay to feel gladness and gratitude as long as I know it's impermanent? Sure. I, mean, uh, I don't see any um, you know, issue with that. It's... You know, there's lots of um, things that we experience that are what you would consider to be centrally gratifying. Um, you know, like, oh, like a wonderful sunset or anything like that. Everything okay, Bunte? Sure, Bunte, no problem. I think it's more of a matter of kind of being in the moment, you know, like you understand, you know, we have wonderful things, wonderful views here at Bhavana. You know, the, like a, a week ago, a bunch of us were on top of a mountain, the mountain at night and we saw the stars and the Milky Way and all these kind of things. And you can be under that and be so, wow, you know. But you, you can appreciate nature, but you don't want to uh, be too attached to it. If you're in, if you're in the moment, you can use that moment to, um, to cultivate a, uh, to cultivate your, um, your concentration because that moment is actually helping you. This is why being out in the wilderness and the woods kind of is much easier for many people like myself. When you know meditating in here, inside this building with everybody, it's this one thing. But when I'm by myself out in the woods, it's like. You know, so you you have this view, this feeling of the environment around you that helps you gain this kind, this level of tranquility and peacefulness, and you can use that to um, enhance your practice. So when you're in nature and you're appreciating something, stop and breathe, and just follow your breath. Understand what you're seeing, understand what you're smelling, hearing, all of that. You can use this as a, as a mindfulness exercise. Gladness is part of the, uh, part of the, the process of getting into the, the deeper levels of concentration. And you know, um, tranquility and, and, and piti and um, rapture, all of these things, gladness, all of that comes together. It helps... Um, and helps you have a calm, peaceful mind, and that leads to concentration. In mindfulness teachings, such as with Tarbrock, I often hear of being with feelings, with presence, without a need to change anything, and with loving presence. 
things can shift naturally to a more positive feeling, sadness to peace. What I heard yesterday seems like a different approach, that we should change our mind state to be positive, to practice Dhamma. Is there a way to do both, or is there a crossover in the teachings? Or I wonder if I am misunderstanding the approach. Please clarify. Being with the feelings with presence. I don't really know Tara Brock or how she teaches. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, um, not too much well versed in a lot of like these lay kind of teachers. Um, so I, I can't really speak much to that. But feelings, you know, the, these kind of things, the, the, the four satipatthanas, right? The, the Buddha is teaching us to see, to observe body as body, feeling as feeling, mind as mind, mind objects as mind objects. You can, you're sitting there with the, um, the intention to just watch them, right? You don't want to add anything to it, like your likes and your dislikes. You don't want to add, um, you know, extra views and perceptions and all these kind of things. You're trying to do your best to see it with a clarity that um, we normally can't see because we have um, an attachment to a view or we, our concentration is bad and these kind of things. So... <clears throat> In a way, I mean, that being with the feelings, I, I guess, could be, you know, the the, the practice of, of mindfulness. Um, you don't really want to change anything in your practice, though. I mean, it's just like like uh, Bande Sila said um, in the beginning, right? Natural breath, right? Nothing is anything that we're controlling is not really the, the natural version of it. But it's, uh, we can observe how we control things. That's a very important part of our practice, is observing how we want to control things. We have expectations. Especially when you sit down for the, you know, if you're a new beginner meditating, you sit down, okay, I have this expectations, I'm going to be peaceful, I'm going to follow the breath. And then you're not peaceful, and your breath, you can't follow your breath, and you're having troubles, and your mind is everywhere. And your expectations are just blown away, and then that's when negativity comes in, and, and you know you feel like you're a failure, and you didn't do it right, and all these kind of things. When you are just able to sit there and just observe, I don't want to say objectively because everything is subjective in this practice, but observe with an equanimous mind, a mind that is without attachment and aversion, you can see these things. Um, without all of the extra control that you add to it. I don't think that, see when we hear it, that we should change our mind states to be positive. We're not forcibly changing our mind states. We're not like grabbing hold of them and saying, okay, now you're going to be positive, right? You, metta is, metta is a way of setting conditions. You know, and in this practice, you come to realize that so much of what you, the, the feelings and the thoughts and everything that arise in you, you set the conditions for in the past. And I don't necessarily mean like in past lives. I mean, 
you know, in, in the past couple months, in the past years, all of these things, the habits that you build up, the tendencies that you, the tendencies of mind that are habituated in your mind. And so we, uh, uh, I was going off on a tangent and then I kind of <laughs> missed it. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we're, we're not trying to force our mind to be happy and peaceful. We're not trying to force our mind. It's not like putting a gun to our mind and saying, okay, now you're going to have love for all beings. You have to set the conditions for that. That's what this practice is. May I be free from anger? Well, maybe I'm not free from anger right now as I'm practicing, as I'm saying it, but I'm setting the conditions for the future. So it's important to set those conditions because that is how, so you're not like forcing yourself. I think that's the, the misconception here. Nothing in Buddhism is forcing. You're, you're, you, the practices that we do are practices that are put into place to change our habits. And changing our habits takes place gradually, slowly, over time. How can I become okay with being alone? What can I do to lessen the feelings of loneliness, craving? How can you become okay with being alone? It's a very easy answer. Become your own best friend. Now doing that is not easy. <laughs> doing that requires a lot of metta. It requires a lot of dropping judgment. You know, w w the one thing that I say that people have asked me, what's the, in 10 years of practicing, what is the one thing that you have noticed the biggest change? And for me, the, the biggest change has always been self-judgment. I was a very judgmental person, mostly on myself. I was very hard on myself. I was very negative on myself. I would say back at, probably even in my high school years, I hated myself. But the practice helped me change that. And so when you, I mean, it sounds corny as hell, but when you become, when you accept yourself, you become your own best friend and you have no problems at all being by yourself. The practice does this. The more you practice, the more you see how <clears throat> the reality of how things are, the more you drop judgment of both yourself and others, the easier it is to be with yourself. And so you can, you're okay when you're around other people, that's good. When you're not around other people, that's also good, you know? Um, I guess it also, uh, one of the things you can contemplate is, um, you know, there's a wonderful, actually it's in many places, it's in the Dhammapada, it's in multiple suttas, but the Buddha talks often about how it's better to, to be by yourself than to be with a fool or to, be, to have company. There is no fellowship with a fool, right? If, you, uh, if there's people in your life that are beneficial to you or are like Kalyanamitas, spiritual friends, that being around them, they support you doing good deeds and living a good life. They don't, you know, say, hey, come on, let's go drink and rob a liquor store or something. You know, like these kind of friends, these people. You want to avoid these people. So in that regard, you can say, hey, it's actually much better that I'm by myself. Because who knows what I could be dealing with if I was with these people. <laughs> but, I mean, 
I, I guess the only thing I could say is, is to practice and become friends with yourself. Spend time with yourself, actually. That's um, a, a big thing. You, know, you can learn over time to spend time with yourself. Be okay with yourself. If you're in a relationship, set a, t- set a day or whatever, times a day where you can be like, okay, well, you're going to go here. I'm going to go here. I'm going to do what I like by myself, spend time with myself. You go do spend time with yourself. And then, okay, then later on we'll come together. You know, If you're not in a relationship, well, man, you have plenty of time to practice being by yourself. And it, you know, it's again, it's a, it's a practice. You can learn to live with yourself, then you can become friends with yourself. It's not easy, and it takes time, but this practice helps you do that. Ah, this is kind of the same thing. How do I deal with self-hatred? How do I develop love for myself? Practice, practice, practice. <laughs> practice, practice, practice. This is not, a, this is not a, um, an overnight thing. This is not like a self-help guru thing. This is literally changing the habitual tendencies of your mind. And that is not an easy thing. That takes a long time. I think I pretty much said anything else that I would want to say about this before. Meta to yourself. Sometimes it's just so, your mind is so infested that all you can do is just give metta to yourself. So metta to yourself, practice metta to yourself. Realize that you are just a being, you, you, know, you have limited energy, you have limited um, ability to do things and to change things. You know, you're not a superman or a superwoman. You know, the things that happen around you are things that happen. You can't control and change the world. You know, you, you can only change yourself. And that happens by putting effort into setting the groundwork for change. So It takes a lot to not be so hard on yourself, but that's the, that's the beginning of letting go of self-hatred. Have compassion for yourself and metta. If having relationships, spouses, friends, etc. means having attachment and therefore craving, should I have relationships? As long as I have relationships, will I over, always suffer? Short answer, yes. Yes, that's the nature of, of the game. That is it. And there's no sugarcoating it. You know, there's um, a sutta uh, with uh, Visaka. Visaka is one of the the greatest lay disciples of the Buddha, and uh, you know the, they're talking about uh, you know I think she she had lost a grandchild or something like that, and she was talking to the Buddha about the loss, and and the Buddha said, "Would you?" adopt all of the children in this city and she's like yes and he says well when you have a hundred uh, dear ones you have a hundred sufferings when you have one dear one you have one suffering when you have no dear ones you have no sufferings what does this mean that we should all just run away and not have any dear ones and no i mean you know for a monk a monk's that's part of the monk's life is to 
to do that, to let go of dear ones. For a lay person, that's not part of your life. That's just, you know, so you will always have attachments. You will always have friends. You will always have loved ones. You have children, spouses. That's just part of living life. So you shouldn't, it's not that, you know, that's a negative thing per se, unless you really want to get out of samsara, then it becomes a negative thing. But, to, you know, I've, I answer this question a lot because people kind of, they read Buddhist doctrine and they're like, but like I have children and I have a family and I have a job and all these things and this is saying I shouldn't have any attachment to them. <clears throat> You're always going to have attachment. Even myself as a monk, you know, I have, I have mother, I have a father, I have you know, relatives, I have attachments, right? When they die, of course I'll be sad. I mean, you know, and um, you know, I have a training to, to not like, you know, lose everything over it when people die. I understand, you know, this stuff that's part of this meditation practice and, and, and living the monastic life. Um, but still it's an attachment. And when you have loss of an attachment, you suffer, right? The, the definition, uh, one of the definitions of dukkha is separation from beloved, right? Being separated from what you like. When uh, um, in the five, the five things to contemplate always, the five things are, um, you know, I'm subject to, to old age, I'm subject to illness, I'm subject to death, I will be separated from everything I hold dear. That's something that you practice and that you understand. And so <clears throat> even as a lay person, you can know that you have these attachments. You don't have to be self-deprecating self about it. You don't have to hate yourself because you have attachments. But you can work gradually to being okay with these attachments and letting it go to the point where you know you have this attachment to this person, but you don't need to be overly attached to this person. You know, just like um, what I always saw when I was around couples and stuff like that, when I was married and, you know, dating all this stuff, you see the people who are like literally like attached to each other, like they are at a party or something and they can't, you know, they can't separate at all. And then you have the couples that like one's over there, one's over there. Everybody's talking. They're they're, they're okay. They can be separated. Right? That's a, a good analogy of of this. You know, there's clinging and grasping and attaching, and there's okay. I have this attachment, but I don't have to have it rule me. You know, I don't have to. I can live my life. Understand, I have family and loved ones and and stuff like that, and I can continue my practice. And I can understand more deeply until the time comes where your practice um, leads to you to wanting to become a monk and then you renounce and <laughs> put on robes. Otherwise, it's okay. You know, don't, never feel bad because you have attachments. You're going to have attachments. Monks have attachments. Monks have attachments to robes. Monks have attachments to food. Monks have attachments to everything just like lay people do. So are we want to take the next step to lessen those attachments. That's the only difference. So don't down yourself for having attachments. It's okay. But you understand that when whatever you hold dear, when you are separated from that, you'll suffer for it. 
That's part of, that's a, like Bhanteji likes to say, buy one, get one free. You buy one, you get one free. You can't escape that. It's like you, you just want to leave the store with the one thing, but the attendant's like, no, this is yours, you have to take it. Is it normal to sometimes feel like meditation is a chore? Absolutely. Yes. That is definitely, definitely um, something that I have felt many a time. It's just the way it is. And the reason why you feel that way is because you're, you've become bored of it. And you've become like, oh, I'd rather just play video games or, or watch TV or whatever, these kind of things, right? And, and that can happen even after you've med- been meditating for years and you really like your meditation practice. You just go through these cycles of your mind, of aversion in your mind to even meditation. Because, right? oh, I've got to sit down, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. Um, one of the things that I find that is a counter to that is to really make the meditation practice part of every aspect of your life. Not just... Oh, I gotta sit. I had worked late at night to this today. I don't want to sit down and, and meditate and all this stuff. Meditation's not easy, right? It is. It is work. It is hard. So it does take energy. It takes effort. And sometimes you just don't feel like expending that energy and effort. You just rather veg out on the couch and watch TV. You know? I guess that's okay. But you can take steps to. Um, to make it part of every aspect of your life. When you're driving, right? When you're driving, you can see, you know, people are cutting you off and pissing you off. You can understand that. Watch what your, your mind is doing while you're driving. Watch what your mind is doing while you're in the office, uh, you know, um, meeting in the office. Watch what your mind is doing while you're waiting at line, <coughs> waiting online at the checkout counter. Watch all of that. You can always you know sometimes if the breath gets boring just watch your mind what is going on in your mind so when you really come to to start to know your mind and detach from it a little bit it's the best entertainment there is it really is i mean, i just sometimes i just laugh at what comes up in my mind so if you see me like this and then i just go like this i'm laughing at something stupid that happened in my mind <laughs> because it's just really Really? But so, yeah, you can, you can watch your mind. Just watch. It, it's the best entertainment. So make it fun. You know, I do a, um, uh, every morning and afternoon, the, the morning session and the afternoon session, I hang out in front of Jack the Skeleton and I do my uh, mindfulness of death and I do my metta. And like recently I found like because... I came up with a, you know, wording and stuff like that. It started to get boring. It started to get like, oh, I'm just saying the same. I, I was losing the meaning behind the words. Right? You can in meditation, you can lose the meaning behind the action. <clears throat> and so I realized after a while, you know, I have to change it up. I have to do something different. You know, and and so that helps as well. Changing it up, doing something different, trying something, trying the same practice in a different way. Is there an aspect of metta that involves receiving good thoughts from the outside world? 
I often find myself thinking that people are thinking bad thoughts about me or judging me when I have no reason to believe that. Well, they might be. I mean, maybe sometimes, maybe they are. Um, but that, that's also what I call the paranoid mind. Like, you know, I, I, I get that myself. It's like, well, you know, like even when I'm like sitting up at, you know, talking and doing a Dhamma talk, I was like, that person's nodding. Are they, do they not, or do they not, do they think I'm boring? What is this? You know, like you, you, like you see the, you have a perception of what people are doing and you automatically go to the negative about it, right? <clears throat> and most of the time, people don't even know you exist. They don't really, I mean, they're st- stuck up in their own issues, in their own mind, and all this stuff that's going on. <clears throat> and so you're like, you're worried about what they're thinking or what they're doing. They probably don't even think about you at all. Um, but th- that's like the, the paranoid mind that we have, that we worry about these things. But I mean, let's see, it involves receiving good thoughts from the outside world. And I, I guess you can kind of tell when, like I was talking before about people who are very negative and stuff like that. You, people give off these vibes of negativity or positivity. Um, and we tend to try not to want to be around those kind of people. But... I don't, I don't believe there's anything in Metta regarding like actually getting thoughts, like, like a prayer or something like that. You know, have, say some Metta for me so, you know, because I'm going through this or that. Um, like there's, you know, a, a magic thought is going to go from your mind, their mind to you or anything like that. Um, although there have been interesting studies about like, you know, people who are sick and, and people who pray for them or have good thoughts um, about the person and, and there's some correlations about people you know who were prayed for or had good thoughts thought about them that they did better i don't know so maybe metta is a part of that i i don't know that's all real speculation but the most important thing is what's going on in your mind and the the feelings of goodwill and compassion for yourself and others not what uh, other people's minds are thinking about they have to deal with what's in their mind I understand that alcohol in excess can lead to heedlessness. I don't understand why drinking any alcohol is a precept in the same category as killing, etc. Could there be a difference in understanding this in the context of Buddha's day? Not really. Back then, people drank alcohol to get wasted. Today, people drink alcohol to get wasted. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's an escape. It's like video games or, or watching movies and TV. It's just a form of escape, that's all. Um, and it's a form of escape that leaves you, I mean, come on, most of us have been to college or went through a phase where we drank and stuff like that. We know what it's like to, to drink and basically not have any control over your motor functions and all these kind of things, right? <clears throat> you don't, most of the time, people might not even know what they do. And if they do know what they do, the inhibition of, you know that would normally be there is gone, so they were you know are more like to break the other precepts under the influence of any kind of intoxicating substance. That's really I think the 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 basis for this being um, a precept. 
And I mean, you know, people will often bring up, well, what if I like just drink a glass of wine for dinner or something like that? Um, you know, people have different views about this. Uh, you know, some people are very strict. You know, you should not have any alcohol whatsoever. I mean, that's what I did. Um, and uh, I never looked back. It didn't bother me. I stopped drinking. And I mean, by that point, I wasn't really drinking much anyway. Um, but I stopped it. And other people feel like, okay, they can have, you know, a glass of wine for, for dinner. I'm not going to tell you not to. I mean, you can still somewhat follow the precept. But, uh, you know, I'm not going to be negative about that either. Um, I think when, with a lot the precepts, there's a lot of gray in the precepts. And people have different views about the full extent of what each precept covers in their life. <clears throat> and I think that when you first start following the precepts, you might make these kind of different exceptions on different things, or I feel this precept doesn't cover this or that. And as you progress in your practice, as you enhance your sila, your, um, your moral, living by moral principles, then you start to understand, okay, well, I used to think this was an exception, but now nah, I don't want to do this anymore because I understand what it does to my mind. So, yeah, I mean, so... I'm not going to give you carte blanche to go, like, go drinking every night or whatever, but if you feel like you can drink in moderation and, and you want to follow the precepts, at least try to follow the four precepts you know, as best you can. <laughs> there, there's a sutta where a monk goes to the Buddha and, and he says, you know, following 227 rules is really hard. And the Buddha says, well, can you follow the, um, what was it? Following, following the three, the three paths to the higher mind, which was like um, the higher mind, higher path of of sila, higher path of um, concentration, and maybe maybe it was sila samadhi panya. I'm not sure, but but he, you know he says, can you follow these three things? And the, and the monk's like, yeah, I can follow that. Okay, well then follow those. So if you can follow, you know, if you can only follow one precept, it's better than following none. If you can follow all five, good. Do you have advice about trying to... Oof. I need advice about how to answer questions quicker because time's running out. <laughs> Do you have advice about trying to trust our own judgment about what actually is right thought, right speech, right action? While we are simultaneously questioning our perceptions and beliefs, What we're talking about is kusila and akusila. It's skillful or wholesome and unskillful, unwholesome. It's pretty easy in many, in many ways to understand what is kusila and what is akusila. Kusila, skillful, is anything that is beneficial to yourself and others. Akusila is anything that is harmful to yourself and others. You can see that with your own experience. You know, you... Um, you don't necessarily need some kind of uh, deep concentration or, or you know, a, a higher perception to understand these things. You see these with your own experience. So you can trust yourselves and trust your own judgment in seeing that, right? Um, 
you know, what your the, the Buddha gives advice to his son Rahula and, and he says to um, before you do an action of bo- a bodily or verbal action think is this, a, is this skillful what I'm, and is what I'm going to do something worth doing while you're doing it think is this skillful is what I'm doing worth doing after you've done it is, was this skillful should I not do this again was it good for me to do this again? So you're analyzing your, um, you're analyzing your actions through the experience and the um, the um, the conditions, whatever happened from that. You're analyzing whatever happened from that experience. You know, I did this, and this was really unskillful. I don't want to do this again. You know, or I did this and. You know, it was very beneficial. I felt good about it, and and I helped this person, and and you know, I I like that. I want to do that again. So that's how you know, and that's really how you you understand what is skillful and unskillful. It also helps to to have um, to understand uh, have the um, the counsel of a wise person, like you know, like the Buddha, and these kind of things, like. They, in the suttas they say um, and the Kalama suttas like when you know for yourself that this is skillful then um, that it is praised by the wise then do it if you know for yourself it is unskillful that is not praised by the wise then don't do it if, you, if there's people that you know who are wise skillful people that do skillful um, that live skillfully you can use them um, as kind of sort of like a guidepost, you know, um, in addition to your own perception and your own view of, of the experience. You mentioned the meta instructions. Oh, man. self oh oh the way okay um, it's asking me about the um, you know doing meta to yourself and then to uh, your teacher loved one neutral person um, uh, enemy etc that came about later in the commentaries um, it, it, it's uh, featured prominently in the Vasudha Magga, um, so that's why I said it's not it's not in the the, the Nikayas, which is the oldest um, pre-sectarian uh, discourses that we have. And by pre-sectarian, I mean it was before there was Theravada and Mahayana, um, before Vajrayana. Every one of those, um, every one of those. Uh, schools of Buddhism has these Nikayas in one version or another. Often it's called the Agamas. Um, so this is why we call um, these four Nikayas, the Digha, the Long Discourses, Majjhima, Middle Discourses, um, Anguttara, which is the, the um, Numbered Discourses, Samyutta Nikaya, which is the Connected Discourses. These four are considered early Buddhist texts. And everyone, you can go into a Mahayana monastery, they have them in there. 
you know, they might not focus on them. You know, they might be focused more on like the Lotus Sutra and stuff like that, but they'll have them. So these go way back you know, to, to the oral tradition aspect. And that is the, this type of metta meditation is not taught there. Now that doesn't mean necessarily that it doesn't work or it's bad or anything like that. If it works for you, that's okay. You know, so, uh, but to understand the perspective of here, our perspective is we want to teach <clears throat> directly from what is the oldest and the closest to the words of the Buddha will ever have. Some people will say that these four Nikayas are the direct words of the Buddha. I can't say that. I won't say that. But they're about the closest we're ever going to have unless somebody digs up some like Dead Sea Scrolls or some like amazing find and we find, oh wow, look, at th this is you know, what the Buddha said and it's 500 years older than the, this other stuff. So... Sometimes in a particular sit, I may have a hard time sending metta to myself, but it's easier to send, I guess, outwards or vice versa. Is it okay in one sit, uh, uh, sending metta to myself or to others? There's a tendency in our culture to lose ourselves in others, right? This is like we, we, uh, you see us sometimes in like relationships or something like that. People want to just totally, um, uh, totally, how should I, I'm trying to think about a way to, to put this, where they avoid their own, working on their own issues, working on their own mind, and they, they use the other person as a distraction from that. So they just totally embrace the other person and then it's just like all of the thoughts on that are on that other person. So that's why you can probably find it easier. It's like, oh, I don't want to deal with my own stuff, so I'm just going to give metta to everybody else. Like it's really hard to deal with my own stuff. Um, so that's, a, I would say, examine your intention. Um, what I do... I, Speaking of like words and visuals and stuff like that, I'm actually, it was never, I've never been big with the words. I'm much more of a visualizer in my practice. But one day, like about a year ago, it came to me, um, the wording of all of us. Instead of like, may I be happy, may all beings be happy, it's may all of us be happy. So you can say one thing and include yourself and everybody all together. So you can try that, see if that helps where you are including all of us. That includes everybody. So may all of us, it's, it's somewhat, it's kind of sort of going away from yourself, but it's still including yourself. So try that and see if that works for you. But don't avoid yourself. Watch the intention when you, say, when you want to do metta for others, but not for yourself. What about if somebody has caused us harm and we haven't forgotten yet or gotten over it? Send metta. Feel, 
can feel like glossing over one's suffering. Do we? So um, my response to this is, is basically related to the, the sutta I, I told you guys about of the ways of um, subduing hatred. That is, you know, w- when you have somebody, and in my own practice I have done this, and sometimes it's hard, but when you have somebody who does treat you badly and has done bad stuff to you, and you just feel like there's just an, an injustice, and it's really, really hard, and you really try to do metta, and you try it one time, and, and, but it, you still feel that way. That's normal. You have to keep doing it. Every time that comes up, every time that comes up, you give that person metta. That's the only way that you can do it. Now, well, I suppose you could also try to do your best to, to handle the situation with the person um, in a skillful way. You know, try to see if you can... Uh, oftentimes if we're, if we're really harping on something, there's probably something we need to do in, you know, in the world to help our mind let go of that as well. You know, sometimes if you have to, you just avoid the person. It's hard when you live with the person, but <laughs> sometimes you have to do your best to avoid the person and still practice metta for them when, that, when the thoughts arise in your head. So you can try to do something skillfully uh, do a skillful action to help try to allay these thoughts in your mind and you can also do metta at the same time. So it's like a two-pronged attack towards aversion in your mind. There's nothing in, in Buddhism that says that, we, that you have to be a pushover or that you can just let people you know, do whatever to you. Sometimes you have to take action but you want to do it not with a mind of anger. You want to do it with a mind of metta. You want to do it with a mind of, of, of um, wisdom, of understanding. So you want to do something in a skillful way. And sometimes you have to think about how you can do that. And while you're trying to think about what you should do in that situation, practice metta. Can you say more about the joy of meditation? I notice when I meditate, I feel joy sometimes when I slow down. Happy in the fact that I feel calmer, more peaceful. But I think you are referring to a different joy. What is it? I don't know if this was directly to me or if I was saying anything about the joy of meditation. Um, I've never experienced like PT, like this like unbelievable rapture in these feelings with meditation. You know, and it, sometimes over the years, people have talked to me about their meditation. They're like, you know, I get these lights or I see these things and these astral visitors and all this stuff. And I say, well, man, my, my meditation is boring. I just sit there <laughs> trying to follow the breath. I mean, like, you know, um, I think for me, the biggest joy in this meditation, the biggest thing for me is when I start, started to realize little, little bits of not self. When I started to see that my thoughts weren't me when I started to realize that I didn't have to accept them. That is a freedom that is unmatched. And I started to understand what the Buddha said when he said identity view is a burden. It's like lugging this identity behind you. you And when you are able to start letting, loosening that, um, that weight, 
letting more like it's like throwing rocks out of uh, out of the the weight behind you lessening the weight as you're moving up the hill it's an amazing feeling when you when you again it's not that i don't have a self and i also i want to say i'm not like highly realized or anything like this what i what i want to say about not self is this it's not like oh i have a self oh eureka okay i don't have a self that's not not self You, it, it's more like you have a big iceberg and you're chipping away at it. That's what not-self is. Gradually, little by little, you start to see things and that you start to question them. Like, well, I thought this was me, but it doesn't seem like me. I don't see that anymore. Well, I used to think this way, but I don't anymore. And that is a, that's a wonderful freedom. Even, even the smallest little glimpse of that is, is a wonderful... So. When I can be in meditation and whatever comes up, I just, realize, I just allow it to be a process where I don't have to attach to it and just be there and be at peace and, and it's not bugging me. You know, I, I, never, I don't think ever in my meditation I'm like, oh, smiling and all this kind of stuff. But the, the best is when it's just totally at peace, totally calm, no nagging of self, all of these things that just are a burden on you. That freedom is wonderful. And so I guess that's the the joy of meditation for me. I was working on the meta factors, then I heard a loud noise which made me jump. I I I was instantly snapped out of my meditation, but that made me realize that I felt so focused on the words and feelings of metta that it felt as though everything else had fallen away. As long as you weren't sleeping. As long as you were really concentrating, then the good. <laughs> is this what true, correct meditation feels like? As a beginner, sometimes I wonder if I'm doing it correctly. Hmm. It sounds like you were in a, in a fairly concentrated mode. Yeah. Um, w- what I will say is that When you're, when you're concentrated enough, or if when you've meditated enough, you practice enough, loud noises and everything, they, that doesn't bother you. You can, you can hear, like you can register that there's this noise, but it doesn't keep you away, you know? And it also depends on how deep of into concentration you are. Um, I, I don't know if this might be the same instant, but I kind of did that too. Like maybe the, the 4.30 meditation, I was like, like that. To something I don't know what it was, but yeah. So keep practicing. Don't give up on the practice. If you if you have um, if you were really really focused and really concentrated on this practice and really seeing the practice, really seeing what you were doing with your mind while you were practicing the method, then yeah, you were practicing. Which of the five hindrances does fear fit into? Is it ill will or restlessness and remorse? I have seen translated as worry and flurry. What is the correct translation of this hindrance? Restlessness and remorse is fine. Um, it's, it's just a, um, a state of mind that is very active and very um, attached to, you know, 
worries of the future or things that happened in the past. That's really all it is. And where does fear fit in? Fear fits into all of them. Fear, fear is the, um, you know, ill will is fear. You know, if you, have no, if you have no fear, where can your ill will be? Restless and remorse is fear, it's worry. It's all of that. Doubt is fear. Am I doing this meditation correctly? Should I be doing this instead? And that, that, that fear can lead to people, there's some people who've been like, you talk to them, oh, I've been meditating for 20 years. And they're like, well, yeah, nothing much has happened. And over those 20 years, they, they had lots of doubts and they tried, well, you know, maybe this, maybe this practice is, will be better than that practice. And they just keep going to that practice and that practice. That. So fear is driving them all over and they get nowhere. It's like, what they, I guess what you call spiritual window shopping, right? Fear will drive you into these, these unskillful <coughs> mind states. So fear is behind that. Even kamachanda, which is the um, desire for sensual desire, that's fear, right? We, we don't want to be too, too away too long from our sensual desires because our sensual desires bring us happiness, of course. <laughs> so we want to be with them all the time. We fear when we're not with them. What does hindrance refer to in the five hindrances? <clears throat> hindrances to the jhanas or something else? Yeah, hindrances to the jhanas. The, the uh, pancha nivarana is the Pali for it. <clears throat> and it is a hindrance. What, what this means is that it keeps you from entering the deeper states of concentration, jhanas being one of them. These are states of, of mind that keep the mind, I don't want to say active in some way, but keep the mind from <clears throat> its ability to concentrate and just the, the, the first factor of jhana is secluded from uh, sensual pleasures secluded from unwholesome states so that is when you are secluded from <clears throat> these states jhana happens naturally so that's why they're called hindrances although personally I um I'm not a big fan of the term, although it's the, 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 the direct uh, translation. I heard a monk talk about using the hind- be, seeing the hindrances as friends. And actually, I'm kind of big on that kind of stuff, seeing these negative ass- things as friends. And the reason, uh, as guides, as teachers, because the hindrances, when a hindrance comes up, it's showing you where your craving is. It's showing you what you need to work on. So if... Restlessness and remorse comes up. Okay, well now I understand that this has arisen. Why has it arisen? How do I let go of it? So it's showing you, it's teaching you what you need to do to work with it, to let it go, and to move on towards concentration. Visualization, recitation, and putting weight behind generating metta can cause mental strain, confusion, and headaches for me. Should I sit through this or adjust my practice? Adjust your practice. See what works. Um, I, personally, I found that visualization by, by itself is pretty low energy. I mean, compared to like really like thinking about words and things like that. 
Uh, you know, like one of my practices, like when we do the, you know, at lunch, when we, when we recite it, while I'm reciting, my mind is going from, it's going out. It starts with everybody there, and it goes to encircling the earth, the Milky Way, universe, etc. And so I can still chant, I can say these words, but I can visualize my metta going out, right? So you can do, you know, play with your practice, see what works. You don't have to take headaches for metta. <clears throat> you could give metta to your headache, though. Have, heta, uh, have metta and compassion for yourself. What is the role of spreading the good news or sharing Dhamma with others? <clears throat> what are some tips on doing this with skill? There's only one way to do it, and that way is living it. People don't want to hear about people. <clears throat> I watched some video about... Um, uh, like a like a mock like a, a video about like people who all get like you know secular they come back from these secular vipassana things and they're like oh my god this is so great this is great and like you see their friends like these like like they're getting a, 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 like annoyed with because these vipassana people are like oh my god this is awesome you have to do this you have to do this you don't want to do that that is the worst thing you can do if you really want to help the dhamma don't do that please don't do that live it <coughs> be it. That is how you do it. Uh, to give an example, I was the only Buddhist I knew in my daily life until I moved here. Um, for 10 years, I was the only practitioner I knew. I was the only Buddhist I knew. But what I did was, you know, at work, I meditated. I did walking meditation. You know, I, I lived the life. I didn't say, hey, have you tried meditation? You know, I didn't, whatever other people were doing, that's what they did. But I did it. And then, so people knew me as that guy who meditated. And so they would, you know, say, hey, oh, you know, tell me about meditation or what you do or this or that. You know, um, and then they knew, okay, I was a Buddhist. And so that's how people, people who were interested had questions. Other people just, okay, well, that's the Buddhist guy. And that's fine. So really, that's, in my opinion, that is the best way to do it. You, you spread the Dhamma by living it, <clears throat> not by the sword or by forcing it. So there's like three or four questions left. It's 8.01. I'll give you guys the, the choice. Do you want to, to keep going or do you want to stop? Raise of hands wants to keep going. Stop. Okay. Anybody who needs to go to the bathroom or leave at this point, it's okay. Don't worry. You're not offending me or anything if you need to leave. So there's only a couple more. Can the group protection sutta be used to keep bugs out of your house? No. No. <laughs> this is not, oh, bugs, I have metta for you. Please don't come in here. Get out of here. No. <laughs> no. <clears throat> what this will do is help you <clears throat> to be at peace with the bugs being in your house. You don't realize that <clears throat> even if you don't see them, there's bugs in your house. I remember seeing a, um, <clears throat> some kind of statistic that there, there's not one human that doesn't live within six feet of a spider on this planet, right? <clears throat> and when you actually, um, when you have metta, you actually come to appreciate the bugs, like the spiders. Spiders are awesome. The spiders keep the, thing, keep the place clean, keep all the other bugs away, 
And spiders are, are <coughs> my, my pals and my kuti. So I have no problems with the spiders and practicing. Practicing metta is to get rid, it, it helps you alleviate your fear of these bugs. <coughs> you come to realize that they're just beings. Now, of course, I mean, if you walk into your kuti and there's like a, <coughs> a king cobra or something in there, you know, you can have metta for the being, but you, you know, sometimes people just can't live together in close, confined, you know, circumstances. So, you, you know, you're not going to be able to live with a, you know, a bunch of poisonous snakes um, in this, the same room. You know, that's, that's the difference. So, like, <coughs> for instance, like, you know, having metta for the bugs, right? What happens with bed bugs? What happens with fleas and lice and all of these very invasive bugs that can come into a house, <coughs> Right? That, that's one of the things that a lot of people have fear over with like the first precept. You know, like I have a family. Like I don't want fleas jumping on my family. I don't want, you know, bed bugs are horrible and biting and all this kind of stuff. Um, like what do I do? And that, that's a hard thing to say. I can't say, well, just kill them all. <laughs> I, as a monk, I can't say that. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, I mean, Sometimes this is one of those gray areas of the precepts, right? So sometimes you might have to take on karma because you have the karma of having a family and wanting to keep them safe and happy and all that. It's not an easy thing. It's not an easy choice. <clears throat> I mean, there's ways of, there, there's supposedly non-lethal ways um, of getting rid of bugs like that, but most of the, a lot of times they don't work. So, I don't know. That's, that's the case where a person has to make their own decision in that situation. But no, having metta to have an aversion against something and hoping it, that it goes away is not going to work. <clears throat> if anything, they might like you more. They might actually, if you, if you practice metta for the spiders, they might hang out and then you might just be like walking towards your door and all of a sudden there's just a big spider chilling right by your door and it's just like, came by to say hi or something I don't know <laughs> sometimes I wonder that I was like well, what are you doing you're just standing there in front of my door why are you there but okay anyway I noticed the last couple of meditations that I keep getting a, a falling feeling like when you feel like just fell when you are just lying in bed or that quick drop from a ride you get at the beginning okay is that just falling asleep since I have not meditated for the duration? It could be. I mean, it, it could also be um, if you lose mindfulness and, and you're kind of drifting and you, like, like that. I mean, it could be something like that. <clears throat> I mean, it could also be just something in your mind as well. I mean, it, it could be a variety of different things. Um, you know, the, the, the only thing that I can really say about that, oh, like the Tower of Terror at Disney, I remember that. It's interesting feeling. So, yeah, that, that can be a scary feeling. Um, <clears throat> but I would say it's just a feeling. Observe it. Watch it. Watch what happens to your mind and your body after feeling that. See what's going on. See, watch your intentions regarding that. And then come back to your meditation practice. Observe it as a phenomenon. There's lots of things that can happen. <clears throat> How does one get over remorse and regret? Oh boy, we don't have enough time for that one. 
by letting go, letting go. Having compassion for yourself, self-forgiveness. The, uh, the, the, the only confession there is in Buddhism is for monks. Uh, every two, well, not every two weeks, but anytime we, have, we um, do something that breaks one of the rules, we confess it to another monk that we trust, right? And so <clears throat> one of the, uh, in the suttas, the Buddha, the, what I call the, the method of forgiveness is that um, <clears throat> the first thing you do is you recognize that, uh, that you did a transgression. You recognize what you did. The second thing you do is you make amends for it in accordance with the Dhamma, which is, usually means like, you know, uh, confessing for it and doing what you can to make things better. And the third thing is um, striving for future restraint, i.e. doing your best in the future not to do it again. So forgive yourself, accept that, you know, if you did something, it's in the past. Do your best to make amends for that if you can. If you can't, let go and move forward. And that's easier said than done, but it's a practice. You can practice it you know, over time and eventually you'll let it go. Okay, last question. How can we have a balance between metta and restraint, i.e. treating yourself to extra food? Ah, <clears throat> that's when, that, uh, that's not metta, that's craving. <laughs> that's not, it's, it's, like, it's not like, oh, you know, I can only eat two meals a day, so uh, I'm going to have metta for myself and pile up all the food, and, you know. <laughs> no, that, that's not metta, that's not, that's not uh, feelings of goodwill, that's craving, that's, and, and that is your mind. Your mind is really tricksty. Your mind is really devious. That's why when in the suttas they say Mara is very devious. He's always trying to trick you. Your mind will try whatever excuse it can, whichever alley, whichever way it can to get you to do what it wants, for you to give in to your desire, to, to um, follow your cravings. And sometimes it can be so convincing. Like, you know, sometimes, a lot of times... I, night meditation I'm meditating my mind's like you don't want to meditate you're tired you, you had a hard day go, go to your room you know you hang out don't worry about meditating right and I'll say no shut up no, I don't say that much. <laughs> and then it'll think of something else you know, it, uh, it's always trying to to try to find a way for you to um, to get what it wants for you to follow your craving and that's what this is that's just, ooh, maybe I can use metta to figure out a way to follow my craving. Watch your intention. Don't let it do that. Okay, friends, that's it. We've gone only about 10 minutes over. So uh, from here on in, we can take a break and come back for our uh, final meditation for the night. Stop.